Hey everyone, uh, the Fight Sex Anime Podcast back again with another video. Like, share, and subscribe. Um, this time we have a couple of events to talk about, and then we're going to go through a Patreon request. Uh, but first of all, uh, hello Ed. Ed is with me as always. Hi, I've really done a number on you by before we started. I was talking about some of the, the video recordings that we do, <laughs> and. Shiram, first of all, almost started it with only recording his audio because we were just talking about only recording one person's yeah, audio for the videos. Bamboozled, and then you uh, you did the intro as saying it was a video, so I completely in- it poisoned your mind, invaded your headspace. Yeah, this is why we shouldn't talk before the podcast, just go right into recording. <laughs> yeah, that, no planning is the best because you don't have time to get confused. You just flow. Very true. Uh, yes, but... we are both confused. Uh, so we are right after uh, Dominic Reyes lost to Yuri Prohaska, which was a really fun fight, but also probably erased any hope that any of us have for Dominic Reyes moving forward. Um, I don't really know if many people did. I believe Yuri was the favorite going in, but it was an incredibly violent fight and had a surprising amount to take away from it. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, a lot happened. <laughs> it was very, very packed with information and, and content. And luckily, you don't have to think of all of our takes here because they are documented and recorded uh, in our commentary video for the fight. So we do commentary videos on pretty much every UFC main event. This weekend, I don't think we will do the main event, honestly. I think we'll do some of the better fights on the card, Yeah. Um, like Gillespie CDF. But yeah, we did do a commentary, so the video is on Patreon. And the audio is on any podcast platform under the Fight Site Podcast Network. And then, you know, just on Patreon in general, it's $3 a month to get access to all of our exclusive video content. Uh, the videos are available as uh, Google Drive links. So you can actually download them if you'd like and do whatever you want with them, I guess. Uh, <laughs> just don't sell them without us. Yeah, I mean, who are you selling them to, really? That's um, true. Who wants secondhand videos? Don't put them on YouTube well, for free. Yeah, don't do that. You're, you're going to get a copyright strike if you do that's that. True. That's why we don't put them on YouTube. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, that's where all the videos live. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so we were uh, expecting the fight to go about as it did, I think. Uh, Yuri Prohaska struggling with the counterpunching of Reyes if it ever got that far. But Reyes also struggling with keeping his composure under fire as he did against Jan Blachowicz. Um Both of those played out to some degree, where we saw Reyes find success with the one counter that he's used consistently where he angles off and hits the left hand. Um, but also, he's not particularly consistent at using it under fire uh, because, you know, we saw someone like Jan Blachowicz just kind of blitz him and fluster Reyes and not really give him the opportunities he needed. When um, Reyes is surprised, he doesn't really do that kind of thing. He just puts a high guard up and backs up straight, and Prohaska was very, very equipped to deal with that. So that was pretty much the dynamic. Reyes can really deal with Prohaska's very dynamic offense and uh, absolute relentlessness. But both guys have some interesting looks within that uh, sort of broad strategic game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I picked Reyes beforehand. Not a strong pick, but I definitely picked him because uh, I did it on heavy hands too. It's out there that I did it. <laughs> but obviously I didn't really have a read. Um, but I, I, you know, my read was that I thought that Reyes could, could counter him and that he was hurtable. And for a while it seemed like, yes, he could counter him, but two, he was not hurtable. Um, that seemed to be false, but actually later on, closer to the finish, actually, he did drop him, um, or rocked him bad and, and had him in a little bit of trouble and had him shooting on him. And then he pulled that terrible guillotine and ruined the moment. <laughs> was that, that was the same moment, right? Yeah, it was. Oh, that was awful. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, he actually did rock him one of those times with the counter straight on the back foot. And uh, yeah, I knew he had at least that look. And uh, he did some sneaky things to John Jones, but I think you know, those are really specific reads he made for John Jones. You study him more than you're going to study someone like Erie. Um, also, probably harder to study for Yuri because he does a bunch of things and they're Very weird true. and they don't really make sense sometimes or they're like yeah that could work like as a trick but then he just builds it into his game like uh, Jack Slack posted how he always uh, like waves his hands around and throws a front kick and like you know <laughs> moves up into it from the hand wave I'm like yes I guess he could do that <laughs> that's a lot of his game right is like it's just kind of ideas that he came up with to make his strikes more confusing and like you could also learn defense but that's that's a way to fight too, I guess. Uh, but yeah, Reyes was able to have some success. But like you said, he didn't have many ideas in the back, but basically just that one counter and a high guard. And even though that he does get off to a bit of an angle sometimes when he hits that counter, uh, one he runs out of space because it's a small cage, right? Yeah. Um, ran out of space more easily. And two, Yuri actually is a decent cage cutter. Um, he's able to lever punch uh, off his rear hand and like follow up with a hook and cut the cage. Um, did he round kick at all? I think cage? I remember at least one instance. I also remember him hitting like a hook to the body as Ray yeah. circled off. Yeah. So there were some nice offensive looks from Yuri. It's just, as always, the defense is something that he's not concerned about particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's just kind of the Ferguson-y all-offense style that depends on it confusing is Ferguson-y. people. Yeah, there have been a lot of comparisons made, but that's the first one I saw was Justin Gaethje from Luke Thomas. Uh... No. I don't, I, mean, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think I can see from, like, champion from another organization coming in, winning high-ranked fights thing. He is a pressure instantly fighter. Being a, yeah, <laughs> instantly being a title contender, being super fun, but not really anything concrete. Um, yeah. Someone like Brandon Royval might be another comparison, where a lot of his footwork is just confusing and flashy, and he's kicky. But, yeah, he's the way that he fights, it's more dependent on, like, really weird offensive looks and that kind of means that you're going to be out of stance a lot for a lot of fighters so uh, the fact that he got past probably the second best counter puncher at the division which is kind of yeah, sad to say but it's true um because like reyes doesn't really have a particularly deep counter punching game at all and his defense doesn't connect to it well uh but what all. about tiago santos but, uh, he is dead he lost to <laughs> we don't acknowledge him anymore uh but the fact that he's the second best counter puncher in the division is kind of sad but it does remain a fact and Jan Blachowicz is, I think, significantly more versatile and significantly more composed, but it still kind of puts a hard cap on how much you can limit Yuri Prochaska, because Reyes is a pretty big puncher, and we saw that when he hurt uh, Yuri, it just kind of turned out that Reyes couldn't take advantage of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I don't really know how to feel about him as a fighter. I'm not, like, a huge fan, but he's really fun. He is fun. He's a pressure fighter, which I always like. Yeah. Um, yeah, he has a kicking game. He does hit the body. Like, he does a lot of things I like. It's just, uh, in a way, he is like Gaethje in that there are a lot of claims being made about his defense, but what separates him from Gaethje is his defense is worse. <laughs> um, even even then, like, earlier forms, like uh, like the Johnson fight, honestly, yeah. um, he got hit a lot in that fight, but also Johnson's doing a really good job hitting him. And, yeah, I, I don't know. So I, I don't know why I'm trying to take away from his performance, but he definitely took a ton of shots, and his chin is great, and he knows it. And he needs to be fast-tracked to the title, I believe, because you don't want to let that simmer. You don't want him to do do that more before you get a chance to really use him as, like, a guy in the title picture. You should just start throwing him in title fights and main events uh, 
well, he's already in main events, but you know, yeah. just just put him out there immediately because who knows how long this is going to last. Um, but it's definitely captivating for fans, not just because of his style, but also because of his aesthetic and the things that he says and his whole energy. Yeah, I don't really see a way. So they're talking about putting him against Alexander Rakic. Uh, I don't really care about don't that know fight. About that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a ton of fun if Rakic wins. Um, and honestly, Rakic's performance against Santos, I want to treat as a loss uh, for both of them. Neither one won. But, yeah, I think if Prohaska has, like, a sensible route, it's probably just winner of uh, Blahovic versus Teixeira in, like, the fall, I think, which is super far away. But, um, yeah, he, I think Jan versus Year is probably the best fight you can make at the division at this point. Glover might derail it. Like, it's definitely possible he beats Jan. But also, he's not nearly as interesting, I think it's fair to say, especially with his age and the fact that he gets hurt in every fight. So, I don't know. I think that's probably the right call, especially since he's gotten two uh, reasonably well-esteemed wins at light heavyweight. Like, Ozdemir and Reyes aren't particularly great, but at light heavyweight, they're among the better guys there, for sure. So, mm-hmm. it's an interesting situation for him. Yeah. Uh, we didn't mention the knockout. He killed him with a spinning back <laughs> elbow off a post- rear elbow and he spun through the real rear elbow miss into the spinning elbow and uh yeah it's, it's a nice it's a nice setup i like it yeah and he, he, he he killed him so dead he broke his face he face planted it was really really rough looking yeah he landed right on his neck it was very gross scary uh, yeah he like shifted through the right elbow and ended up right in position uh yeah i mean honestly that at that point in the fight the actual mechanics of the finish weren't super relevant just because Reyes has gotten hit. Reyes had gotten his shot and couldn't take advantage, and he was pretty much done at that point in the fight. I think round one was bordering ten eight for Yuri, so it was uh, a very good showing for Yuri, even if it showed all the issues that we expected from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we talk about the rest of this card and get into the rest of our agenda, well, first of all, let me tell you what our agenda is. <laughs> so, not you, Shrum. You know what our agenda is. I do. The listener, the fans. Um, so we're going to finish breaking down this card and give for, for what there is to break down. And before we get on to our other stuff, our other stuff will be uh, the upcoming PFL event, the upcoming Bellator event, and then the upcoming UFC event. But we have two Patreon questions that we're going to include in this episode. Isn't that exciting? Uh, finally, finally, juice to the gills, we're answering your question. Track down that coward Brian Wagner. I said, you better answer this question or you're done. You're done here. You'll never work in this town again. Fire him. And he did it. So we have it. I haven't listened to it yet, but it's it's done. Hopefully it's good. Uh, but yeah, your question's about uh, the grappling and wrestling meta and MMA, how it's changed, like the, the control uh, and the use of the cage, like all that sort of stuff. I probably should have had the question up so I could read it. Oh, you know what? I'm actually in the, um, whatchamacallit, I'm in the, uh, the, the forum request. So I can tell you. Here's exactly what Juice to the Gills asked. He said, discussion on the modern grappling meta in MMA, meaning groundwork and takedowns. How has the meta evolved over the years? What were some real significant periods and techniques? When did shifts occur in the meta? Predictions for how the ground meta will develop in the future. And he wanted me to do it, and Ryan and I did do it on the podcast that that never was, that was lost to history. (laughs) R.I.P. R.I.P. in peace. Yeah, we're doing that one. Well, Ryan's doing that one. At the end of the podcast, we'll do a request from Evan Lee, uh, which is, what are your proudest analytical takes? I saw a thread bouncing around on uh, Twitter today. People were quote-tweeting it, the same question, basically, like, what take are you most proud of? Um, 
like most accurate take that you've had because people were doing that so it'll be like that um isn't that fun getting yeah. to brag cool so card uh this yeah. one let's i mean Giga i don't remember anything killed else cub yeah that wasn't much to say did anything happen before that yeah cub pr- pressured, pressured him a little a bit, bit and like uh, landed a something yeah i think he landed like one shot and then giga just went southpaw and kicked him in the body like yeah. a minute and now he's ranked number 10 he's yeah. ranked number 10 now for that yeah it feels <laughs> like they made cub number 15 just to be able to like bump giga up if he won the fight i'm fine with ranking cub for no reason i mean i'd be fine with no reason just incredibly cynical reasons like this make me sad yeah, I think Giga was a decent favorite, so they're like, okay, might as well give Giga a ranked win. Fair. Fair enough. So they, I guess they're interested in him, which, yeah. uh, whatever. Why not? Fair enough. Yeah, um, he's fine. Uh, <laughs> he's no... He's, well, there are a bunch of featherweights who probably deserve <laughs> to be like up there more than he does, but whatever. Yeah, cool. So a good win for him. He's going to fight someone highly ranked next, which I guess is... I'm, I'm glad they're moving him along quickly at this point, because you know, he's not getting any younger and i want to see how good he is and i'm not really sure yet i think that's kind of the weird thing with him is it it's not really that clear um did you watch oh you did i i yeah so basically what happens i was watching most of the card and then uh, i got bored and i skipped a couple of fights and i came back for the co-main um oh yeah sharam and i tried to record it and then we had a whole bunch of problems recording and sharam's computer turned off and yeah it was scary and then the fight was a minute and we're like all right never mind (laughs) But, uh, yeah, do you have anything to say about uh, Kuta Laba and, and Jacoby? Uh, I think I scored it for Kuta Laba just because round one was a 10 7. Um, but, you know, Damn. round two and three. Maybe didn't I should have watched it then. Better. Just round one. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't particularly interesting. It was just Kuta Laba from, like, the um, from rear standing, getting Jacoby to his knees against the fence, framing on his head, and just elbowing the shit out of him for, like, three whole minutes. Um, cool. Yeah, it was the sort of round where you're like, okay. Kudalaba definitely won the round super dominantly, but he's probably going to gas. And what do you know it? He, he gassed. Um, nice. But, I mean, he still wasn't looking particularly worse than Jacoby, which is the funny part. Uh, he did a lot of the Andrash sort of head movement where Jacoby was trying to, like, jab him straight in, and Kudalaba would just kind of, like, move his head around and dodge him. Uh, Jacoby's defense is just absolutely horrific. Uh, didn't really try to defend anything at all. Insanely hittable anytime Kudalaba just swung, anytime he stepped forward. Um, One of the two glory kickboxing veterans on the card. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, kickboxing is a sham. That dude's just, he's not good. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I guess Kudalabas got slightly screwed, but not really. Since, you know, if you get a 10-7, you should probably go as far as finishing the fight in the next round. Can you hear my air conditioning? Slightly. I'm sorry. It's fine. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I guess Uh, we'll just keep going. Hopefully it doesn't bother people too much. Yeah, uh, Sean Strickland versus Christoph Jotko, not the most interesting fight. Um, but? I mean, okay, well, first off, uh, <laughs> we did make a video about um, Sean Strickland's game, not necessarily with respect to this fight, just in general, uh, so go check that out on the YouTube channel. It's a, He's a fun fighter in a lot of situations. This fight just wasn't one of them, and I think that's more on Jotko uh, being more keen to circle around than really give Strickland the exchanges he needs. Uh, Strickland did kind of figure it out later with the leg kicking, but most of it was just Strickland following Jotko around, throwing straight punches. Um, and he did a nice job finding the right hand by like shortening it, where he was able to shock Jotko uh, on the entry, but not really anything consistent. There weren't the exchanges that Strickland really liked to do. 
but anyway, um, Strickland probably deserves a decent step up at this point, right? Um, depends on what you want for him, I guess. Like, <laughs> Fair is is he supposed to be a guy that moves up and does that? Is that just natural? Or you know, some guys kind of fight the same people forever. Like uh, Kyung Ho Kong just like fights <laughs> once every five years against like a top thirty-ish guy, and he's pretty content with that. Yeah, I mean, it um, doesn't matter whether that kind of guy wins or loses, I guess, right? If you look at his record, he's fought. He's had like two step up attempts it looks like um he, not, not even because like zds is kind of around the same tier as a lot of these other guys he fought when he yeah. fought them uh and puns and ebo i feel like that was early enough that well i'm 2015 hard to remember where what he was doing then uh but yeah that that was like puns and ebo's third fight in the ufc so i don't think he's actually had a step up because usman was on the come was, up at the time yeah that was pretty early too uh oh no that was usman's uh fourth fifth fight in the ufc I mean, so it was kind of a him. step up there. Yeah, uh, but all of those were also at welterweight, so right. this is his first middleweight yeah. step up, and it's... this is his second uh, like big win streak. He had a three fight win streak before, and now he's got four. So yeah, I, I assume they would do that to him, uh, but I don't think it'll go well. Yeah. So just as a guy that doesn't mind watching him like beat up on ranked guys every once in a while, I don't really want him to <laughs> get a step up, and also. Uh, the, his style just looks like uh, a really bad idea if he's going to fight any wrestlers or grapplers. Uh, like, say, if they gave him, like, Omari Akhmedov oh, next, yeah. that could be a problem. <laughs> oh, he's ranked number 11? Wow, they bumped him up. Yeah, they have plans for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, even if he fought Edmund Shabazian, I think he still might get taken down. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, first of all, the four-win streak for Strickland is kind of misleading just because the first one was, like, two whole years before the, the next one. Uh, because he got in that motorcycle accident had to come back, so his momentum was pretty much done by then. But, yeah, I think Strickland is kind of a weird case where I think he's a, a really solid fighter with a lot of strong, like, ideas. It's just that middleweight tends to be a bit more dynamic at the top than I think he'd be able to cope with the way that he fights. Because, um, you know, anyone who's seen him, it looks really weird the way he fights. He's super durable, which helps him a lot, but also he's incredibly upright. His stance is really narrow and square a lot of the time. He sort of does the DC, where every time he takes a step forward, he squares up even more. Um, and his defense is a lot of long leans and parries, which, I mean, it's not, like, bad necessarily. Like, that style isn't bad. It's just that the way he does it, it's constantly taking him out of positions that um, would... It's, tough. it's taking him out of uh, a good position to really defend anything. Uh, someone like Kelvin Gastelum even might be tricky for him, which is tough to say, because I like Strickland more than Gastelum. I think he's like a kind of a much cleverer fighter. He's better at building offense, but also Gaston can cover distance super well. And yeah. um, Strickland is pretty easy to hit out of position. Um, like Gaston might not be creative enough to get it done early, and Strickland might just like throw more things. But it's uh, it's tricky. It's very tricky. I think there are winnable fights for Strickland above him. Like, as you mentioned, Edmund Shabazzian might take him down a lot, but uh, Strickland is also a, a really consistent volume fighter, where Shabazzian is less so. Yeah, um, drops off. Yeah, drops off really hard. He's pretty much a defined first-round fighter. But then again, you also have Shabazzian being incredibly potent in the first round in a way that Strickland's opponents haven't been uh, in, what, since, I don't know, Ponsonibio, I guess? I don't really know. Uh, but, <coughs> I mean, I guess Zaleski, but not really. Um, but... Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, Shabazian is 
probably a bit more poised to take advantage of Strickland being very weird mechanically in a way that Strickland's opponents so far haven't been. So, yeah, I'd like to see him get some more wins, but I don't know whether that's going to happen if he's pushed up the rankings. Uh, uh, I vote that we don't talk about Murad versus Damon because we did a commentary video for it. Yeah. That's on Patreon. It was and very I also good. talked about it, it on uh, the Wrestling for MMA podcast. Um, but, yeah, I mean, any, any short thoughts about it and, like, what to do with Murad next? Uh, I mean, what to do with Murad? Probably someone like um, Marlon Moraes or something. They're probably going to try to give him a decent step up since he looks like he's improving and all. Um, fun fight. You should go watch the commentary. That's all I'm going to give you here. Um, but, you know, um, Stamen is still Stamen. Marab looks like he's working on the stuff that's giving him trouble, but uh, it's still stuff that's going to give him trouble. Yeah, Stamen did a good job. He just kind of dropped off too hard to really produce offense on the feet after he yep. was still defending really well as, as a wrestler and a grappler, but um, just yeah, couldn't do the rest of what he wanted to do while using the energy to do that. Um so weird, though, that he was still able to defend wrestling and grappling well while being really tired. Um, that should have been the toughest part for him. But, yeah, he, he looked pretty good, too. But I definitely was a little disappointed that he was so much less effective as a boxer once he uh, didn't really have the pop in his arms anymore. Um, yeah, I, I guess being, like, an athletic puncher <laughs> yeah. doesn't work as much if you get tired and slow. But, yeah, watch that one with us. Uh, do the commentary. Prelim, people... Uh, Luana Pinheiro hit, hit a sweet headlock, so obviously she's very good. Um, <laughs> and she's uh, Matthews Nicolau's uh, girlfriend, so she's uh, nobody Nobody say anything mean about her. I won't <laughs> allow it. She yeah. won, that's what matters, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't watch most of the fight. I just saw the finishing sequence, so the sweet headlock, and then um, Marco's recovering guard kicking her reasonably hard, hard enough that it could have been like a, <laughs> a reasonable DQ. And then Pinheiro... Kind of. I think people are fine to say she was selling it a bit, but like, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you kind of deserve it. So She's Brazilian. They watch a lot of soccer, football, whatever you want to call it. Like, taking a dive <laughs> is very normal, and she's like, oh yeah, this is how you, how you get the win. She's I mean, in to win it. She's a, she's a gamer. She's a competitor. I mean, maybe if the UFC weren't to, like, attach half their pay to wins, people wouldn't exactly. try so hard to win. <laughs> uh, cool. So TJ Brown versus Kai Kamaka was actually pretty good. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, Takamaka um, is uh, very skilled. Yeah, this was a pretty questionable decision. I don't know if I mean that. He's very... He brings a lot to the table. How about that? Yeah, he drives a high pace. <laughs> We've seen Takamaka before in that uh, Tony Kelly fight where we were, I think, a lot more impressed with him than we are now. Um, but he's reasonably fun, drives a pace. Uh, TJ Brown, I think he was like a supposed to be a grappler before he got guillotined by that one dude. But... Um, yeah, the biggest issue with the fight was mostly that TJ Brown won late with like a couple of really bad fence grabs, but um, yeah, not a ton to say about this one. Yeah, I wouldn't know that TJ Brown was 0-2 before this in, in the UFC against like not that good people, because uh, he, he looked capable, like a fun kind of counterpuncher, scrappy guy. Um, okay, he was the one getting taken down. He was the one <laughs> losing you know minutes on the ground, so it's funny that he's the grappler. But yeah, I remember Kamaka coming out. And uh, no, it was another guy. It was, was it him? Did I do this last week? Who's the one that, that wrestled? Mm, I don't... Soriano? Uh, was that oh the last God. part? Jesus. Uh, no, it was a while ago. Oh. It, never mind my stupid question. Anyway, <laughs> he like one of them became a wrestler out of nowhere, but yeah, he looked like a decent wrestler. Oh, here. Um, fucking the guy who fought Julian Marquez, right? 
Is that Soriano? It might be. I don't know. Let me see. Puna Haley. I feel like was it Puna Haley? Is there another guy? Is there I a third guy? Um... Oh, Pitolo. there is a third guy. Pitolo. Pitolo. Oh my god, dude, I'm so racist. <laughs> <laughs> dude, I didn't remember either. I just These I had to go look at his record. These guys all blend together for me. Are they all? It's like a featherweight and a middleweight, <laughs> probably a welterweight. It's all become the same guy to me. They don't even look similar. I know. I know who those people are. Anyway. I, that's why I didn't have a strong read on what that was going to be like and who this guy was. But I remember our Discord patrons like Kai Kamaka. And they don't like the other guys. So I'm like, all right, well, clearly there's something different here. But yeah, he's solid. He's put together well. Um, he probably won, but yeah. whatever. Uh, did you watch Luana Carolina versus Poliana Potelio? No. I didn't either. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lumber Look Boon Me did her, did her thing, right? Yeah, pretty much. I think. We saw a lot of the same issues with her game and that Sam Hughes was able to just sort of straight punch and land on her. Um, but Hughes also did some... She had a weird strategy where she wanted to like be big and press Loma Lukumi against the fence and Lukumi yeah. just easily outclinched her. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why are you doing this? But, you know, like it looked like a fight that Hughes could have won if she was like slightly smarter. But unfortunately, she wasn't and did the usual women's MMA thing against probably one of the one of the few people who that's genuinely tough to do to, I think. Yeah, don't do that. Don't um, clinch Loma Lukbun me. Very yeah. simple. It's, yeah, it's easily the best part of her game. Yeah, but, like someone like Angela Hill could because she's also good in the clinch and also very, very big. But, but still, those were not her best moments of the fight. <laughs> exactly. Like, there's a fairly clear skill differential there. Um, like both between her and others and between the clinch and the other parts of Loma Lukumi's game where she's not like a great MMA fighter necessarily it's just that people keep engaging her where she's very good mm-hmm. um, the other fights I didn't watch I'm sorry for spoiling it wow neither did I it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you see we don't we don't owe it to you to watch every single fight on the card and this is the trick to not getting burnt out on MMA is don't if you don't feel like watching every fight in the card just don't do it. Exactly. It's very simple. It's very simple. If you guys think any of those fights are good enough to talk about, you let us know, but it's, you know, it's fine. Um, I say that here in the podcast at this point is when we will create a break for Ryan answering Juice of the Gills Patreon questions. So let's set it up one more time, and then we'll be silent for like five seconds, and that's how I'll know where the break is in the podcast. That's a little behind-the-scenes look for you guys. Uh, but yeah. Uh, this is the one about grappling wrestling meta. So one more time, uh, from Juice to the Gills, discussion on the modern grappling meta in MMA. Uh, how has it evolved? What were the significant periods and techniques of those periods? When did the shifts occur? How will it look in the future? So Ryan Wagner is going to answer that. I hope it's good. Hey guys, Ryan here to answer another Patreon question. Uh, I forget exactly how it was worded, but one of our patrons asked for uh, like a rundown of the development of MMA's grappling meta. I already recorded this with Ed and Sarem, but Sarem botched the recording, so here we are doing it again. To start off, we first have to go all the way back to 1990-whatever-the-fuck, when Maurice Smith fought Mark Coleman. Maurice Smith was a career kickboxer who transitioned to MMA pretty late in his career, and Mark Coleman was obviously known as one of the more fearsome wrestlers of his time, just a massive steroid-y heavyweight. And Maurice Smith was pretty lithe, not not a huge heavyweight, and he didn't have too much grappling experience. He'd been competing in MMA for a while by this time, but he was like 5-7 and seven coming into the fight, and he'd already been dominated by a lot of grapplers, so it wasn't really expected that he'd be able to offer much to this massive, strong wrestler. 
But once Coleman took him down, uh, Smith was able to wear him out with just a basic survivability guard. Um, so stuff like framing inside the biceps when Coleman was trying to get off his ground and pound, creating distance by pushing on the hips with his feet, and controlling the head, controlling Coleman's posture and guard to prevent him from uh, posturing up and landing strong punches. This was kind of the first time we saw that basic survivability guard from a striker in MMA. Up to that point, guard in MMA was thought of more as an attacking position, where you were trying to get a submission and be offensive with it. But obviously that doesn't work for strikers. If you are if you have a big wrestler on top of you and you're coming from a striking background, you obviously are not going to have the experience to, to pull off arm bars and triangles and all that. So you have to focus on surviving and defending until you can escape. And obviously the meta at that point hadn't actually progressed to the point where strikers knew how to escape reliably. But just the the idea of controlling their posture on the ground and framing inside the hands so they couldn't get off that ground and pound easy was a pretty revolutionary idea. Around the late 90s to mid 2000s, there were kind of two different strands of grappling metas developing. There was kind of like the Japanese journeyman style of grappling with guys like Hideo Takoro, where they were super aggressive grapplers and they didn't care too much about position. They didn't really have much of a system of passing guard or getting up off the bottom. They were kind of willing to go wherever the fight took them and just try to be offensive with their grappling in any position they found themselves in. Guys like Takoro, Ruminasato, etc. And on the other hand, you had um, kind of a developing wrestling metagame. Guys like Tito Ortiz were starting to figure out how to effectively use ground and pound against guys who had kind of that basic defense on the ground that uh, Maurice Smith showed. Uh, Tito was famous for pushing guys up against the, the cage and then using that to posture up and rain down ground and pound. And later on, we saw strikers adjust to that by learning how to wall walk. Randy Couture was also very influential to that early wrestling style. He kind of pioneered the use of folk-style wrestling techniques and tactics in MMA. Folk-style wrestling prioritizes control on the ground as opposed to freestyle wrestling, and the guy on bottom needs to stand up in order to get escape points and to, to start scoring himself. So in folk style, you get really good at holding guys down and keeping them on the ground. That's one thing that the the early BJJ meta in MMA kind of failed at when guys started really trying to stand up. A lot of jujitsu inspired grapplers aren't really used to holding down an unwilling opponent because usually in your BJJ competitions and when you're training jujitsu, the, the guy on bottom is willing to play bottom. He isn't trying super hard to stand up. He's trying to recover his position and get to a better position in a BJJ sense. They want to work their way back to guard where they can be offensive rather than stand up and do away with the grappling altogether. But those folk style wrestlers get very, very used to controlling an unwilling opponent on the ground. And those kind of tactics that you saw uh, early in the, the modern folk meta from guys like Randy Couture, they would control posts. Uh, so when you go to stand up from the turtle or when your opponent's on your back, you need to post your arms and hands on the ground to, to create that leverage to stand, and Couture would pick guys' hands and wrists out from under them uh, so they couldn't find those posts to stand up, and he could stay on them and keep hitting them. He would use that the same hand-trapping thing to land ground and pound on the top. When he was in half guard, he would pin guys' hands down and elbow or hit over top of them. Uh, stuff like cradles, too. All, all those things are designed to stop the, the the first move from their opponent getting up, so they can't build any kind of base in order to stand. And we've really seen that thread persist in MMA and get continually developed on. Now, after that kind of early 2000s 
um, innovation in wrestling, we started to see similar development in guard passing in regards to the jujitsu side of things. Early in MMA, the way people passed guard hadn't really been systematized. It was kind of haphazard, um, and it hadn't really been specifically adapted to MMA. People were just kind of doing jujitsu things. BJ Penn was kind of the first guy to really develop a, a system that's specifically suited very well to MMA with his smash passing uh, tripods and dope mount stuff. Uh, so basically in MMA, when you're on top in guard, the, the bottom guy wants to create space. He's going to try to frame off with his arms or put his feet on the hips and kick off. And when, when somebody puts their feet on your hips, there's an opportunity there for you to step over. So BJ got really good at forcing guys into butterfly guard or half butterfly guard and then tripoding over them. So he'd post his head on the mat, elevate his hips and just kind of walk over their guard. And then from there, if they try to reattack or reguard, he can adjust his positioning, slide his knee over and switch his hips. So he's in dope mount, which is basically where you have the guy's top leg crossed over his body uh, with your own hip kind of controlling between his legs. And then you can use that to ground and pound or slide over into mount. And we saw guys like George St. Pierre and Damian Maya take that system and build on it. So St. Pierre was focused mostly on top control. He wasn't a submission guy. So he would use that ground and pound in within their guard to force guys to open themselves up, post a foot on the hip, and then he'd right away step over and start looking for that, either that smash pass or just to get into half guard and side control and keep on the guys. Whereas Maya was more focused on forcing that half butterfly guard and then tripoding over into mount. Both GSP and Maya carried their own innovations to that system as well. GSP's system is basically the perfect study in positioning within somebody's guard and ground and pound. He made sure to always keep himself square with his opponent's hips. Whenever they switched their hips to try and take an angle, he would right away follow and keep hitting them. Um, he used a lot of control mechanisms in guard to help with his ground and pound. He would kind of circle between collar ties, cross faces, and stuff like that, and frames to create space that he needed to, to punch the other guy and prevent them from getting any kind of control. If you're reaching up to lock behind somebody's head and they have their arms inside in a collar tie or a cross face, you can't get any purchase on their head and like pull them down to control their posture because you're just pulling their their forearm further into your neck and they can use that to separate. So GSP would use those positions to create space and then he would use like body head combinations inside the guard and all of that was designed to frustrate his opponent, make them go for stupid shit like trying to trying to switch their hips for a hasty arm bar in which case he could just pass or if they get desperate post their their leg on a hip and gsp would just cut his far side leg inside their hip to open up his own hip and step over the leg maya um he had the dope mount which he kind of took from pen and improved on that uh he also did a lot of work with active posting if you watch bgj scout study on maya it shows how when he's when he's using those smash passes the way he posts his arms on the mat would prevent guys from picking up underhooks and kind of help to keep them flat. All these guys I'm talking about, BJ Penn, St. Pierre, and Maya, have been extensively studied, so I'd recommend checking those videos out if you can. BJJ Scout did a great video on BJ Penn's passing style, and he did a series on Maya. I did, a, I think, six video long series on George St. Pierre going over all his um, top control, his passing progression, and his ground and pound style. So I'd recommend looking at those. Now with GSP and Maya, we're getting up kind of into the more modern era. And around this time, guys started realizing that playing off your back is really a losing endeavor. 
Um, there's there's a couple of reasons to this. Not only is it just inherently disadvantaged mechanically, um, obviously if you're on top in MMA, you have all that leverage to strike. And if a guy has good positioning and they're actively hitting you, it's very, very hard to consistently do anything that scores off your back. If you're going to be the kind of fighter that plays off their back, you really need to either do a ton of damage with elbows off your back or finish the fight. And both these things are hard to impossible against elite top control grapplers. Nowadays, people are much more geared towards trying to stand up immediately or sweep. The grapplers have kind of gone from attacking active submission guards to guards focused on sweeping. Like if you look at Damian Maya's game off his back, he'll kick himself into half guard and then right away get an underhook and try to come up on a single leg. And he uses that to sweep and get himself on top. Fighters who don't want to play off their back at all are focused more on standing up right away. The perfect example of this is Jose Aldo. Whenever somebody takes him down, he'll immediately start standing up before they've even completed the takedown, and he's usually able to, to switch his hips or buck himself in a way that removes their control of his body before they even reach the ground. We've also seen fighters become more willing to give up their back to try and stand up. Um, this is, again, that folk-style wrestling kind of thing. If you're flat on your back and there's a guy on top of you controlling your head and cross-facing you, it's super hard to stand up at all. You, there's a lot of positioning work that needs to be done before you even get in a position to stand up. And then even when you're in a good position, when you have underhooks or a strong frame on their hip or whatever, they still have ample opportunity to keep you down, and it's very hard to stand up off your back. So guys have realized that it's easier to stand up by turning over and exposing your back than you can plant your hands and knees or feet on the ground and start building up a quad pod, standing up and breaking grips. And now that folk style metagame has become even more important because guys are so willing to expose their back in order to stand up. Even the, the BJJ side, if you try to take somebody's back and get hooks in and attack the rear naked choke, it's kind of risky. We see a lot of guys successfully stand up because their opponent tries to take their back and then they're able to just elevate their base until they shake them off or even end up on top. Um, so there's a we have a couple of specialist back takers who excel in that. Guys like Damian Maya, UCA Formiga, Oliveira. Oliveira is not specifically focused on attacking the back, but he's very good at it. Guys like those can reliably get their hooks in and sell into the position and control their opponents. But for a lot of guys, it makes more sense to to abandon that and instead go to folk style tactics, controlling their wrists, attacking their posts, riding them and dragging them back down. It puts the guy on top in less danger because your hips aren't directly connected to theirs. If you have your hooks in and the guy elevates his base and starts shaking you off, you're gonna go ass over tea kettle and there's a good chance you end up on your own back with them on top. But if you're riding, you have your hips off to the side and they can do stuff like grand bees, um, elevating their hips and you're not in danger of just going over, you can either stay with the control of them or you can just abandon it and get back to the feet easier. So it's a more attractive option for a lot of top players nowadays. Those folk style tactics become a lot more important once guys learn to use the cage. A while ago I talked about Tito Ortiz, how he would stuff opponents up against the cage and pound on them, and then strikers began using that cage to wall walk. They would slide their back along the cage um, while building their base up on their knees to help them stand. Now we see guys like Habib, Islam Makhachev, Ali Bogov, etc. using the fence to control their opponent's escape. When, when fighters go to post their hand or feet along the cage, 
these guys have a system of cage riding that it basically does the, for the same thing that uh, controlling hands does for, for folk-style guys. It stops their first move back to their feet and prevents them from building any kind of base. So Habib has a bunch of these different positions he'll cycle through. If guys post a handout, he'll do the folk-style thing and control their, their wrist, um, either with inside wrist or a cross-wrist grip. And when you're against the fence and you have that inside wrist grip, it gives you a great position to just flatten guys to the fence, uh, keep their arm pinned, and then just rifle punches into their face. This is the thing that people call the Degasani handcuff now. When people post up with their feet, he has the, the knee mount he can go to where uh, he'll sit on their legs with his, his own legs triangled beneath them. Uh, so from there, he can free up his hands. Uh, their legs are controlled by Habib's own legs, and then he has his hands free to punch, to post on their face and prevent them from getting up or to just shove them back down. If you watch his fight with Edson Barboza, he would be in knee mount, just pounding Barboza's face, and then when Barboza tried to like raise his head up, he would just take it and push it back down and keep punching him over and over. Uh, if they get, if the guy on the fence turns kind of side on and doesn't post both legs but tries to get up on one, there's a cross body ride Habib does where he'll hook that leg with his own, then lay his body across their back, um, so he can he has their leg hooked, so it's hard for them to get purchase on it and stand, and he can keep his weight across them and keep pushing them down, forcing their weight onto their hands where he can control posts and continue hitting again. Habib Nurmagomedov really represents the culmination of a lot of different threads in that grappling meta we've been talking about. He has those very well-developed folk-style tactics, and he's adapted them really well when guys try to use the cage to stand up. He also employs that same kind of passing style that Maya, GSP, and BJ Penn developed. Uh, he does a lot of work tripoding and smash passing over guards, and he uses that excellently in combination with his wrestling and ground and pound. Um, GSP was a lot more focused on just controlling guys on top and didn't really do a lot of damage or pursue submissions, but Habib has been able to use that passing style in a way that really facilitates his ground and pound. So he'll use the tripod passing to smash his way to side control or mount, and once he's there, he has a bunch of different little sub-positions that allow him to hit very effectively. He'll ride guys with his knee on their neck uh, or go to the mounted crucifix. And these, are, these positions give him free reign to, to land punches, but they also encourage the guy to move. GSP's priority was keeping guys flat on their back and not allowing them to move. And when you're really focused on controlling somebody like that, it's difficult to find the space to strike because creating space to land powerful punches necessarily gives them the opportunity to, to move and escape with that space. Habib wants to create space. He wants to posture up and land big punches. And it's not... The fact that his opponent has a chance to move underneath him isn't a downside. He wants you to move in specific ways that facilitate his own control. Uh, so a lot of times he'll posture up from half guard and start punching instead of just controlling the position. And when guys get hit with those big punches, they're, they're going to try to move immediately and they're going to have space to do that. But Habib wants them to do that. And he makes the move specifically in ways that facilitate his own control. Uh, so if he's he'll posture up and press down, press your face down into the mat and start punching you, you're not going to be in the frame of mind to to do the right thing to get up. You're not going to be like, okay, I'll I'll chill here and take an underhook and then work my way back to my feet methodically. He makes guys panic and then they they'll immediately try to like buck their hips and hip escape back to guard. And once they do that, he'll just trap a leg, 
tripod over their guard and then do it all over again. This is something that we also saw from Fedor Emelianenko, where he wasn't concerned so much with locking down the position, but he wanted that space to strike, and the way he created space encouraged guys to move in ways that benefited him and allowed him to, to go right back to the top control and ground and pound again. Submission hunting has changed a lot too. We used to see a lot of submission specialists that would work off their back or do stuff like arm bars on top. Nowadays, the the top side submissions are a lot uh, more measured. People are focused more on things that allow them to maintain control of the position. Obviously, rear naked chokes have always been the biggest submission because they can be attacked directly from the the back control position. Sacrifice control the way you would going for an armbar or a triangle or something like that. The front headlock has become a much more prominent position for submission hunters as fighters have further developed this, their series of front headlock chokes and found paths to them from the striking. A lot of guys that are specifically dialed in on submissions rather than wrestling in top control aren't the best wrestlers, so they have to find alternate paths to their submissions rather than just taking guys down and passing. We've seen guys like Brian Ortega and Charles Oliveira who specialize in catching those front headlock chokes from striking situations. Oliveira especially has developed a lot of really nice connective tissue between his striking game and his submission game. He uses his clinch really nicely with the double collar tie and his clinch knees to force guys to bend down and expose themselves for his front headlock chokes. He also uses them really well as finishers. Uh, in his fight with David Tamer, you saw how he kind of got... He, he had Tamer hurt, and then when he was swarming, Tamer kind of ducked down instinctively, and Oliveira took that moment to lock up the front headlock choke immediately. So overall, we've seen much more trend away from guard play, and more to takedowns and top control, or catching grappling and submission positions right from striking situations. In terms of wrestling, I, I think we actually see less open space work and fewer strong reactive takedown fighters than we used to. Reactive takedowns are still the most consistently successful open space takedowns, but we've seen more of the elite fighters start going in the direction of pushing their opponent to the cage through pressure on the feet and then using the cage to take their opponents down. I think a big part of this is that people have just gotten better at striking and it's hard to find open space takedowns um, when your opponents are not doing stupid things on the feet. Like a lot of the open space reactive takedowns we used to see were from guys just kind of running at their opponents and then their opponent just ducks down and they're immediately in on a double leg and they didn't have to do a lot of work for it. It's just a lot harder to, to create those situations against mid to high level MMA fighters nowadays. They're a lot less willing to, to overextend and lose their feet. It still happens a lot, but it's not anything near the, the drasticness or the consistency we used to see it. If you're striking into your takedowns in open space too, it's it's harder to get the positioning right than if you can create the opening for a reactive takedown. One tactic we see a lot is throwing a long rear hand and then drifting forward into a double leg, but it's really hard to get the positioning really correct on that unless you do it perfectly. It's really easy to end up overextended and then if the guy you're fighting isn't doing something stupid, he'll be in good position to frame off or sprawl. So I think the biggest reason we've seen a trend toward pushing opponents to the fence and working for takedowns from there, rather than going for them in open space, has been down to that development in striking, where it's just not as easy to convince guys to make those kind of mistakes nowadays. And it's a lot easier to chain takedowns together when you have your opponents back to the cage. If you're going for a takedown in open space and it fails, you need to have a strong grip already in order to chain. And the guy has a lot of opportunity to create space and create separation completely. 
On the other hand, if you're pressing the opponent to the cage and your first takedown fails, you have ample opportunity to go to another one. You can just return to the control and keep pinning him against the cage until you find an opportunity for another takedown. And it just makes it a lot easier to, to cycle through takedowns until one eventually succeeds when you have the cage there preventing the opponent from creating any space. The other side to this fence has been strikers developing their grip fighting in regards to their takedown defense. Guys like Robert Whitaker and Jose Aldo are amazing at fighting the hands off when opponents have a lock around their leg or they're trying to lock around the body. They, they'll just peel the hands off and slide their leg out. Grip fighting becomes much more important when you're defending takedowns in the cage as opposed to when you're defending in the open because the cage wall acts as a backstop preventing you from bringing your hips back. So defenses like sprawling or creating space with frames are a lot more difficult. If you're framing off the head, you have to move the opponent away from you, whereas in the open, what you want to do is just keep them in place and move yourself back so they can't follow you. But on the cage, you have to actually push all their weight back to get that opening to create space and move off the cage. Whereas with grip fighting, in the open, it's difficult to to really leverage grip fighting that consistently because often the opponent will be pushing you back and you have to kind of get your balance right before you can begin to fight grips. But when, you're, when your back is to the cage, you don't really have to worry about that as much. You can use the cage for balance and then you only have to worry about them dragging you forward. So you're a lot more free to stand in place and peel their grips off. It works for strikers almost in the same way that fighting posts on the ground works for wrestlers. If you're on top of a guy and he's trying to, to post up to his feet and you control his hands, it stops his first move back to the feet. He can't establish any base, and if you can't get a base up, it's impossible to stand. It's the same way with grip fighting when you're defending a takedown. Um, in order to get that takedown, they need a purchase on your leg. They have to have their, their grip together uh, in order to control your weight and move it to complete the takedown. If you can peel that grip off your leg, then they have nothing. They can't complete the takedown and you're free to move off the cage or to find a better position in the clinch or whatever you want. This development in grip fighting, though, I think has been lagging a little bit behind in the arms race. I mentioned guys like Aldo and Robert Whitaker, uh, who are kind of specifically geared towards stopping wrestlers, but a lot of high-level fighters haven't really developed this skill set a lot yet, and I think part of it comes from just training methods. A lot of this stuff is really MMA specific and stuff that you won't see as much in just normal wrestling and grappling classes. So we still see a lot of high level fighters uh, who don't really seem to understand how, how to most effectively defend takedowns on the cage. You'll see a lot of even elites going for guillotines instead of grip fighting or trying to hold a wizard in a situation where maybe it's not the best and they might have an opportunity to break a grip and in the process keeping themselves on the cage instead of creating an opportunity to break out and letting their opponent continue to look for those openings to finally hit a takedown. A lot of the wrestling practice fighters do takes place on open mats and they might not invest a lot in learning specifically how to defend takedowns on the cage. So hopefully that's something that we see progress more as wrestlers continue pushing that cage wrestling and cage riding style and strikers learn to adapt to it. And yeah, I think that about covers it. I'm pretty much out of ideas now, so I will end this here. Uh, if you want to hear more on this topic, I did a really long podcast with Dan Tom about the top five mat wrestlers in MMA, and we talked a lot about the development of the wrestling meta and the specifics of technique and tactics that guys use on top. You can find that on the Protect Your Neck podcast with Dan Tom of MMA Junkie. I think that was episode 204. I think it was like three hours long, so we talk a lot about this topic and offer a lot of additional information if you're interested. Wow, good job, Ryan. Wasn't that great? <laughs> that was that was amazing. We totally listened to it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
Uh, all right, back to events. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's next? It's PFL. PFL. Yeah. yeah. On so, Thursday. I mean. Which is today. Yeah. Not Tough us recording event. it today, but you listening to it tomorrow today. Yeah. Tough event to really talk sense. about, but um, there are some names on it, so there's that. There are a couple of names. That's that's about all Including I can say. Including the Tom Brady of MMA, according to the PFL <laughs> Twitter Christ. account. Uh, Fabricio Verdum, who, I mean, I, I don't really follow football that much, but I assume that means Tom Brady's, like, incredibly unesthetic. Yeah. yeah, it means he's terrible. Yeah, he's gotten very old, and he looks terrible now. Um, yeah, Verdum is, is this his first fight after the UFC? I think it is, right? He beat Gustafson in July last year uh, with that armbar, and then, um, let's see here. Yep, yeah, this is his first fight after the UFC, so PFL snatched him up and uh, didn't let him go to Bellator to beat up Fedor again. Uh, yeah, not a ton to say. Fabricio doesn't look great at this point. Um, you know, very old, very melted looking. Can still grapple pretty well. Uh, we saw him tap out Gustafsson, and the Atlantic fight was mostly won by him on, like, driving a pace and punching him a lot, which I don't know whether his opponent in PFL can do just because Olenek is like, at the very least for a heavyweight, he throws some volume even if it's very gross and old manny. So, I don't know. Weird stuff. Indeed. Um, he's fighting a guy. <laughs> and uh, Kayla Harrison's also fighting, so that's kind of cool. Not like she's, not that she's like an all-around good MMA fighter quite yet, but she's very good at her skill, obviously. Uh, one of the most credentialed American judica of all time. Uh, and they like created a whole lightweight division for women's 155, which crazy that the PFL can find like eight 155ers, but the UFC can't find two 145ers. <laughs> What's that about? I mean, I have no idea. I think the UFC probably just hasn't tried all that much, honestly. Uh, with, <laughs> it might be that simple. <laughs> yeah, like, Cyborg got knocked out and left. Now Nunes is the champion of a different division as well, so it doesn't really matter that she's also 145 champ, if that makes sense. Like, you don't need to keep a 145 champion busy at this point. There's another weight class to keep her busy that's still not very good, but also kind of works better because more people are there naturally, so you don't have to work to, like, scout people. Where PFL actually cares about Kayla Harrison a bit more because she needs the division where mm -hmm. Nunes can just fight at Bantamweight. Um, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Strange. Kayla Harrison should just learn from Tony Martin because he is the best. That's true. Anthony Rocco Martin to you. Oh, that's true. Uh, uh, Mohamed Usman is fighting. He's Kamaru Usman's brother. Uh, so, you know, watch him, I suppose. <laughs> uh, some other guys I recognize and aren't really worth talking about obviously the highlight of the card is cindy dandois is fighting caitlin young um can't be touched ha have they never fought before i mean i haven't really wow, looked at cindy never dandois record in a while oh well caitlin That's... young uh for for everything else that that comes with her but she's like a yeah she's a pro in 20, 2007 so she's kind of like a pioneer i think she's also a pioneer of women's kickboxing hmm. um yeah she has some stuff on the feet she she fights like she's real old uh, these days. Last time I, I watched her was uh, against Reyna. Uh, not good striker Reyna, but the, the stocky one. Um, that Reyna. <laughs> she, she, I watched her fight her in Ryzen. It wasn't so good. 
Um, but yeah, she's fighting Cindy Dandwa, who we all know can't be touched, as you said. <laughs> so check that out. And uh, they got an undefeated Russian welterweight, Magomed Umalatov. Let's just assume he's very good. Um, and just someone I recognize, this, this is going to be nothing to you, but uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Taylor uh, Guardado, I don't, I'm not sure, but she's one of the women's 155ers. And it's funny coincidence is that uh, we're doing another, like, you know, the, the toughness podcast. Yeah. We're doing a, a third one uh, this Friday. It's going to be out like training and strength and conditioning. We have like the strength and conditioning coach, uh, Gil Gordado from Extreme Couture, uh, coming to talk to us, which is amazing. Uh, Dan Tom hooked that up. Shout out Dan Tom. And I just looked at her profile, and she's Extreme Couture, so that might be like a sister or his wife or something like that. So uh, nothing bad to say about her at all. She's 0-1. This is the, just the beginning. She's yeah. also ranked. She's ranked number 2017 in Nevada. Yeah, I haven't I, seen her, so I can't really say anything bad anyway. Uh, no, yeah. So uh, I hope she wins. Oh, Justin Willis <laughs> is on the card. That's fine. Oh, fun. no. Less, less worth mentioning than uh, than her, I believe. I mean, probably. He's not <laughs> good. Um, cool. So that's the card. Uh, Bellator is on Friday. This one was going to be pretty cool. It's still pretty cool, but it's less cool now that Yoel Romero is not on it anymore. Cause, uh, what's, what's the deal with his eye? Uh, yeah, I think he just failed a physical... I don't think it was like a new injury, he just failed a physical exam. Which, I mean, I guess it makes sense, since apparently his eye has been kind of fucked since Whitaker too. Um, but, you know, he's just... He's been melting ever since that jab. Hmm. Strange. Yeah, in the in the picture for the event, his eye's all screwed up. <laughs> it's, just, it's like, what? How did I never notice this before? I mean, we know it wasn't Adesanya, so... No. Um, but yeah, the main event is the Bantamweight title. Uh, Juan Archuleta is defending against Sergio Pettis, which is good. It's a cool fight. That's a good fight. Yeah. Um, I don't have a ton of takes on Juan Archuleta. He's kind of like the Dillashaw-y type fighter. Uh, he's not great in the pocket, unlike Dillashaw, but he does some fun stuff on the outside, fainting around, uh, building on his attacks. It's like a early round TJ Dillashaw, but for the entire fight. Yeah, that makes. Yeah, like before <laughs> he gets all his reads, that, that makes some sense. Uh, Sergio Pettis is one of the sharp... He's probably the best guy that's ever come out at Rufus Sport. Um, does a lot of fun boxing things. Great jabber, great counterpuncher. Uh, solid footwork on the outside. He's kind of the opposite of Anthony Pettis in that he's not dynamic whatsoever. But um, he's incredibly clean, wins rounds very well, uh, lots of volume, and kind of underrated at this point. I mean, he's been yeah. underrated for his entire UFC career, but... Um, and maybe except for like the very beginning where it's like oh my god it's Anthony Pettis' brother he's gonna oh, be so yeah. good and we're like okay maybe not that good but then people forgot about him and it turned out he was, he's pretty good yeah it's, he's good in different ways and I think ways that people didn't really want him to be good uh, mm-hmm. like if I think that's kind of the conundrum right like if he, if he didn't have the Pettis name he probably wouldn't be wouldn't have gotten in the UFC at the same rate but also if he didn't have the Pettis name he wouldn't have disappointed people by not being Anthony Pettis um, so, you know, people, like, if this was, if Sergio Pettis' game was put on to, like, Ryan Benoit, he'd probably be, like, way less popular, but also still be that fight breaks my heart. Have you seen that fight? Yeah, the one where Benoit knocked him out? Yeah, Pettis was, looked beautiful. Like, and then he got <laughs> the counted randomly. Fight. And then he got dropped randomly at the end of the fight. It was so yeah. sad. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, Sergio going to Bellator has been a pretty good move. I think he did it because the UFC seemed to be shutting Flyway down, right? Now they've just given up on that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> something like that. He went in 2019-ish. So. 
something like that. But yeah, this is a fun fight. I think uh, I don't really have a strong lean. I think I'll take Pettis uh, just because I've seen more of him. I know he's fairly versatile. Uh, he does have a win over the guy who uh, apparently drew with the UFC flyweight champion. And Brandon Moreno just boxed him up for like four rounds-ish. Off the back foot, yeah. Yeah, it was incredibly clean. Uh, did some fun pressure things later, too. Uh, so, yeah, interesting fight. I have a commentary on that fight up on Patreon. Yeah, one of the first sure ones do. I did. Yeah, it's very good. Shout out myself. Uh, resume, not the resume review, one of the ratings ones, right? Yeah, it was like when I was inventing resume review. Yeah. Experimental days. <laughs> uh, next fight, Anthony Johnson, a.k.a. Rumble, uh, versus Jose Augusto. I don't think anyone can blame me for not knowing who that other guy is. I blame uh, you. Short notice replacement. Okay. This is your job, man. It's your full-time shame. job. It's true. It's uh, not true. <laughs> but uh, obviously we all know who Rumble is. Thunderous puncher. I mean, I'm, okay, I'll put it this way. We know who Rumble was. Uh, we do mm. not know who he is. Uh, we've seen him in Instagram photos where he looks like a moon face, but apparently he's <laughs> slimmed down considerably, which is a tragedy for all of us. Uh, but it's unlikely that he's particularly good at this point. Uh, he left in, what, 2017? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, first fight since then, the loss to Daniel Cormier in the rematch, which is one of the more baffling performances I can remember, uh, which is somehow even notable compared to the rest of Anthony Johnson's career. Uh, but, you know, uh, stupid puncher. <laughs> just absolutely ridiculous puncher. Uh, had a really nice game for light heavyweight earlier in his career. Did a lot of He was defensively quite solid for a light heavyweight. Did a lot of fun offensive stuff off frames. Could pressure uh, much better than the average light heavyweight. But at this point, it's probably just going to be Augusto getting punched very hard and Johnson losing in the next round to someone who can do things. Could have been Yoel. It would have been a nice little name on his resume. Um, the rest of this card is a little strange because there's a lot of fighters I care about, but they're usually not. They're not really in fights that I care about. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm not really sure about this one, but uh, Patricky Pitbull, who we call Bad Pitbull, not because he's like bad, bad, but yeah, compared not, to Good Pitbull, yeah. he's not. He's not good. Um, <laughs> uh, he's fighting uh, Peter Quilly, who I've heard about, but I'm not sure if that's just like a ireland hype job because they do that now because they're trying to capitalize on connor uh the connor wave or if he's actually good do you have a take on him no i don't think i've ever seen him before i have heard his name that's fine i don't yeah exactly um michael page is fighting again yay michael page everyone loves him (laughs) someone with a wikipedia Uh, page too yeah um derek anderson has been a pretty solid lightweight in bellasaur for a while um naturally he's he's uh fairly confident but yeah he's a welterweight uh, now but you know he's, he's gonna be small probably he was lanky at lightweight so we'll see if he filled in but it's just another like this is probably a like, close to the highest tier opponent that, that he's fought honestly michael page yeah it's like you know right below lima um like a little worse than paul daly maybe but just, just come on <laughs> also like paul daly being an actual welterweight so that's yeah. something michael page continues to not not take steps up but you know i just talked about it when i was talking about sean strickland like not everyone has to but just you know your, your promotion of him as, like, the best striker yeah. in the sport is annoying if he doesn't fight anyone good. All right, anyway. Rafion Stotts is fighting. He's a, a really good wrestler. Um, and another Rufus Sport guy, actually, who is pretty solid. Um, so I like him. He's fighting Josh Hill, uh, who has been the best Canadian bantamweight for a while, I think. He was on tough. I'm not sure what happened with that. But he's been around a while. I think he's pretty confident, well-rounded, strong. 
Um, he beat Eric Perez in his last fight, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Take a look out for him. Um, I don't think he ever got a shot in the UFC because he's kind of boring. I think that's why, but he, he's solid. So that should be a, a fairly... Uh, it, sh- it won't be a bad fight in terms of the things that they do. Yeah, that makes but sense. But it could be slow-paced. Um, Larkin versus Carvalho. Carvalho is the former middleweight champion who got his ass kicked by uh, Gegard Mousasi. Uh, blessed be his name. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the GOAT. Uh, but he's on kind of a rough skid. He beat uh, Chidi and Jokuani in the middle of like a pretty rough four-loss skid otherwise. So he's not doing so well, but he's fighting Lorenz Larkin, who has been known to fade in and out of fights, but has a reputation for being good. He's won a few fights in a row in Bellator, which is nice. Uh, beat Korshkov and um, the the other guy, uh, the guy who fought MVP, I think, right? Uh, let's see. Gonzalez. Anyone. Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are the names that I really remember Larkin fighting recently. I haven't really looked at it. But I don't know if he's lost since that time he got knocked out by Daly. So, you know, he has a reputation for fading in and out of fights. But uh, he's a pretty solid technician who has some decent wins to his name. So no, he had those, that enough. Lima and Daly losses back-to-back and then beat a couple guys after that. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you're right. Oh, he beat Nakamura. I've heard of Nakamura. He lost to uh, Tony Martin, right? Yeah. Is that the Martin. only thing you know him for? <laughs> yeah, I've seen him in the UFC a couple times. But uh, Rocco Martin's fights, the ones where I remember uh, gotcha. Rocco Martin looking really good. Oh, he also lost to ZDS, uh, beat Morono, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Larkin back up to middleweight, which is funny because he either started as a light heavyweight or a heavyweight. I remember him fighting King Mo in Force. Now he's back. He went down to welterweight. Now he's back to 185. So I uh, hope everything's going all right with him. Maybe just, you know, he, he outgrew 170. Just the cut was too bad and not like a I want to get fat thing. So see how he looks. Uh, Patchy Mix is fighting. He's actually pretty entertaining. Uh, definitely a strong, like, wrestler grappler, grappler type. Check him out. Um, a lot of other wrestlers. I mean, by a lot, I mean two. <laughs> two other wrestlers on the card that definitely should be paid attention to. Uh, Logan Storley uh, is fighting. I think this guy might be from Brave. I might be wrong. I'm just, yeah, I'm just stereotyping. He's from <laughs> UAE Warriors, which is obviously lesser, lesser Brave. Um, he does but, have a Bravey name. Yeah, yeah. Logan Storley is really good. Um, he's a hoofed guy. Uh, Transit Sanford, they call it now. But he uh, wrestled for Minnesota uh, during the era that I you know, started watching college wrestling, and he's a four-time All-American. Uh, the era that he was competing in, it was like there were like seven guys that were all title contenders, and they were all really good. And he was one of them, and, and they all just went back and forth with each other. And like whoever got through that year was just like a total coincidence. Um, who the champ would be for like three or four years straight um, except for like Chris Perry he, he was good at winning but uh, yeah those guys were all neck and neck the whole time and he was he was with that crew uh, so him not being a national champion and being a four-timer is a little misleading he's definitely better than a lot of national champions uh, but yeah he's had a really good MMA career he picked it up really quickly uh, you know figured out ground and pound pretty quickly uh, and his striking is definitely getting better it's not good uh, but it's getting better he's and he's, he's a hoofed guy so he knows how to throw his hands um, he knows how to kick, and he knows how to connect it to his wrestling, and he's, he's a good grappler. And he had a really tough fight with Yaroslav Amosov. Uh, I hyped that one up, and it was definitely good. Um, and you know, Amosov beat Ed Ruth before that, who was a three-time national champion, and there was a lot of wrestling in that fight, and Amosov proved himself to be very, very competent as a wrestler and grappler. Uh, I think he's a combat sambo world champion. Uh, but yeah, Storley was on his legs the whole time. They just kept fighting through those positions, kept scrambling, and Storley's conditioning was insane 
It was one of the craziest welterweight conditioning performances I've ever seen because uh, Amosov has great cardio and he was tired uh, and started with cat getting to his legs. So that was cool. Uh, I think he has a high ceiling. So definitely watch Logan Storley. Um, he's got all the all the right attributes and his skills are developing very nicely. And then um, Johnny Eblen, another uh, Division One wrestler. He's fighting Daniel Madrid. I don't know that guy, but um, Eblen was a 174 pounder from Missouri. Uh, the year that they were, you know, set up to, to be uh, team champions at NCAA's, and he uh, got disqualified uh, for headbutting a guy, and now he's an MMA fighter, so it makes sense. But I've watched him; he seems to be in a similar boat. Not as much of like a physical presence. He's strong, but he's not like gonna push a crazy pace on you and really show off his motor. Um, but he's just solid, solid and good, and uh, he's undefeated. And uh, yeah, check him out as well. Anyone else that catches your attention? Uh, yeah, I've seen Henry Corrales before, mostly because of that uh, Aaron Pico knockout, where Pico hurt him, and then Corrales just banged him out in the pocket. But um, Corrales has fought a bunch of decent guys. Um, Pitbull, one of the Pitbulls. Uh, Manuel Sanchez, Strauss, uh, Archuleta, Caldwell. So he's lost to all of those guys, but he's fought them all, and he's been around the top-ish for a while. So that's probably worth watching, even if I've never heard of Johnny Campbell in my life. Um, I have, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, do you remember uh, Brian Gerson from MMA Sucker? I think I do. He's uh, he's his coach. He was his coach. Or he is his coach. So he's oh. number one bet in weight in New England. Says Tabology. Nice. Um, but yeah, he, he is his coach, and he he's did interviews with him. His nickname is Cupcakes. Uh, I remember. I remember so vividly. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard of him. So uh, yeah, I hope he I hope he wins. I guess. I hope he has a good showing in that case. Yeah. Um, but you know, Corrales is definitely has the longer tenure among great fighters. For sure. Um, I don't and Eric Perez is fighting. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, Blaine Schuett. I don't know who that is. Blaine Schutt. Yeah. Uh, number two flyweight in Pennsylvania. I'm coming for you, Blaine. <laughs> oh, he's got a cage tattoo in his arm. He's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that's enough of Bellator we talked about. Yeah, that got very Bellator at the end. Um, uh, so, UFC card? Yeah. So, this is UFC Watterson versus Rodriguez. I don't really have... A, a great read on that first fight just because uh, Marina Rodriguez she's a fun striker uh, for women's MMA really fun huge for the division uh, I think they're finding yeah they're finding a flyweight because it's on like five days notice but they're natural strawweights um, well Watterson's actually smaller than a natural strawweight but they, they usually yeah, fight she's a not weight. Yeah. Yeah, she put all the weight in her legs to try to get <laughs> up to, to 115 but yeah they usually fight at strawweight so this is basically a strawweight fight um, Rodriguez is huge uh, does a lot of fun things with knees and frames into punches. Uh, has some decent counters, I think. I think she beat uh, Amanda uh, Amanda Hibas on the counter, so that was mm-hmm. fun. Uh, Watterson, not quite as distinct. Does a lot of like sidekicks and poorly distanced attacks in general. Um, just beat Angela Hill, I believe. I think that was her last fight. Um, let's see. Yes, it was. And I don't think she actually beat her, but, you know, Angela Hill Yeah, things. he robbed her. Yeah, Angela Hill just can't win a decision to save her life ever. Um, but yeah, does the, the head and arm throw stuff and decent grappler. So you know this is kind of a tale of two fights. I think Rodriguez wins pretty decisively on the feet. I don't really think Watterson can compete there with someone who's kind of decent the way Rodriguez is. But uh, Rodriguez does have a habit of getting stuck on the bottom and getting thoroughly out grappled. So who knows? Uh, it is five rounds despite the short notice, so that's pretty cool. But other than that, not a ton of intrigue in this one. Do you agree? No, I don't have anything. I, I wouldn't have be able, been able to come up with as much as you just said. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Cowboy, 
what is with them and Alex Morono? Why do they use him in this way? I think he's um. just like player two for the UFC. <laughs> it's like, um, you know how in Mortal Kombat, where anytime you need to like go into practice, it's just the first guy that's on the screen is Sub-Zero all uh-huh. the time? That's just what they're doing with Alex Morono. He does have a very generic look to him. Exactly. He looks like some random guy plucked out of the regionals. And he's not bad, necessarily. I don't even want to like super mean to him he knows what he he's was doing the there. first guy to really show us what fighting nico price is like um because he he beat nico price pretty thoroughly and then got killed knocked the out like at the very end of a, of a round and then they didn't give him the win because of weed or something like that but yeah. uh that was like the first like okay nico price doesn't need to win minutes at all um <laughs> type of deal but he looked pretty good there uh we just talked about kato nakamura but yeah, he's he's had good performances over guys that aren't too bad uh, he did get also knocked out by key. Chaos Williams, but you know, <laughs> so he is susceptible to being athleted. Um, but Cowboy isn't really athleting anyone at this point. Yeah, I mean, we have seen Moreno fights, um, approach fights with some degree of tact. Which, uh, he did do that against Anthony Pettis, for instance, where he was like, you know, I'm going to come out super hot and try to just get Pettis off his game early, which is smart to do against someone who's really old and trying to revamp their game. Uh, tried so to play collared him. Yeah, Cerrone isn't really trying to do that kind of thing. Uh, I think he's just way too deep into his career and stuck in his ways to really change anything. But um, I don't really give Morono a great shot here. I don't really know. Uh, I mean, Cerrone did look dreadful against Nico Price. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't look good, but he looked like he would still beat UFC fighters because the UFC has a lot of fighters that aren't great. Yeah. and he didn't look like he was just, you were just going to kill him if you hit him even remotely hard. Like, Price did what he, he was supposed them. to do early in that fight, and it didn't work. Yeah, Price would have done him if he was that far gone. Uh, Cerrone's mm-hmm. chin issues have always been more like he curls up and dies more than he gets killed. <laughs> Besides uh, when Gaethje just, oh my god, yeah. shoveling him. <laughs> Gaethje was the probably the exception. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's fought enough high-level really big punchers that you can kind of get a gauge of how his chin generally is. And it tends to be that if you beat him for a certain amount of time, Cerrone just doesn't... He gets TKO'd more often than he gets KO'd by, like, a very large margin. So you're not mm-hmm. just going to, like, touch him and he dies. Morono is decent at keeping volume up through a fight, but also, like, if his path is running forward at Cerrone, he might just get kneed a bunch. I don't know. Like, this feels like the sort of fight where Cerrone struggles way the fuck more than he should, but also wins eventually, if that makes sense. Yeah. No. that's That sounds right to me. Yeah. Um, the Neils... The Neils are fighting. That's a fun fight. Um, <laughs> Jeff Neal versus Neil Magny. Uh, Neil versus Neil. The loser Neils. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but uh, Jeff Neal is... I don't really... Okay, so Jeff Neal doesn't look like the most versatile fighter out there after the Wonderboy loss, but also no one looks particularly great against Wonderboy at this point, which is annoying to see. Uh, Neil didn't approach that fight well at all, but, uh, you know his game didn't really allow him to do that, so it's not really like he fought against type and dumb. Uh, he's a really fun southpaw double attacker, solid kicker, um, good combination puncher when he gets going. Uh, it's a very quick, incredible athlete, in my opinion. Neil Magny is a little bit more subtle of an athlete, I think you could say. He's durable and incredibly well-conditioned, but uh, most of his win condition and a lot of his fights is guys just deciding to clinch with him, and that's the only place where Magny is like slightly dangerous to be with, if that makes sense. Uh, Magny still isn't like a super dangerous clincher in like moments. He just kind of gasses you out and leans on you if you do uh, if you engage him there too much. Uh, Neil doesn't seem like the kind of guy to do that in my opinion. I think Neil might just sit at range and kick him a lot, 
but uh, you know it's hypnosis what can you say yeah the neil magny clinch thing isn't that he's like elite in the clinch for the division he's just good enough to make it do stuff yeah and he does try to fight a volume style otherwise so in a fight that you might already need a break uh he makes you do a lot and burn your arms out and, and make it sloppy and ugly and it, it freaks you out because you lose a lot of time in the round when you're when you're clinching with them like that and it makes you strike differently because you're a little more anxious about having that happen again um and then he he gets confident about it and then he starts to actually force it himself a lot more so um it's it's a whole snowball effect with him and and uh jeff neal didn't look useless in the clinch against wonder boy he also didn't look like him getting tired is that big of a deal yeah um, that was five rounds and he did throw a lot and you know did get countered a lot and didn't you know go away or lose the ability to throw hard so that could be interesting yeah i mean he had to fight a very exhausting fight against wonder boy just to stay in it and mm-hmm. uh, he did fight it for the vast majority of the fight uh, so you know i think round five was probably wonder boy's worst round although wonder boy did break something so there's that but yeah. um yeah, Neil did uh, a, a very poor job against Wonder Boy, all things considered. But I don't think that transfers at all to fighting Neil Magny. Uh, and Magny's pretty vulnerable to most of the things Neil does. So there we mm-hmm. go. Uh, I, I'm going to skip Hacherio de Lima versus Green, if that's all that's right o- with you. That's okay with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carlos Diego Fajeda versus Gregor Gillespie is probably the standout fight on this card. Um, Diego Fajeda is off the loss to Benil Dariush, which is not a bad loss at this point. Uh, Dariush is a pretty tricky opponent to deal with at the best of times. Um, Gregor Gillespie off the loss to Kevin Lee about a year and a half ago, I believe, at this point. Um, not, I mean, that's the thing. Both of those guys lost to relatively tricky matchups for them, but also it's tough to see where they are in their careers for different reasons. Uh, Fajeda yeah. has always been fairly old for a lightweight on the come-up, and Gregor Gillespie is off a long layoff and a really, really, really brutal knockout. And he's old, too. That's true. Mm-hmm. We we saw against we saw with Gavin Tucker uh, that sometimes that just catches up to you all at once, and it's very sad to see because you know if one of these guys loses, it's pretty much over for them uh, in terms of contention. And it might already be over for Fajeda in terms of you know actually being a contender after the, the Dariush loss. But uh, you know, uh, anyway, in terms of the fight, Gregor Gillespie, really great wrestler, uh, great against the cage, nice riding, but not particularly comfortable on the feet. Uh, CDF, great pressure fighter. Uh, not okay. I'll put it a different way. Great at pushing the pace. <laughs> not the best cage cutter. Doesn't really try to do it all that often. Uh, but just relentless. Nice combination punching. Solid counter punching he showed against Tysimov. Um Did a nice job fainting in behind his lead leg against Pettis of all things. Um, and also a great grappler. Tough to wrestle. We saw that in the Houston Havilov fight, uh, where Kavilov tried to wrestle him, and Fajeda just did some jitsu and ended up in a crucifix, almost choking him out. Um, so did some jujitsu. <laughs> yeah, did some jitsu. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting fight because I think if Gregor Gillespie can uh, command the ring craft, it might be a bit easier to control Fajeda against the fence than it would be in the open, or Fajeda can just scramble wildly and end up in cool places. Uh, but it also seems fairly likely that if Fajeda controls the ring craft, he's a much more insistent pressure fighter, and I don't think Gillespie is the sort of strategic fighter Darius is, where Darius was just, you know, pressuring hard to gas Fajeda out as quickly as he could by taking him out of his element, where Gillespie is a little bit less insistent upon that as a striker. So, I don't know. I think I'll go with Fajeda, but it's a very close fight. Yeah, that's a tough one to call. Um, Gillespie, you know, still, but, you know, even especially before getting knocked out by Kevin Lee, I would say that 
He's extremely durable. That, that really supports his style. Obviously, great motor. Um, super strong. Not really dynamic, but uh, definitely you know, good physically. Yeah. <laughs> he, he can move. Um, when, when, he, when he throws his shots, clearly there's power behind them. Um, but yeah, he is not the type of wrestler to get in super clean on you at this point on the feet. Like uh, he, you know, he has he has a strong double. Uh, you saw that in college. Um, he works against the cage a lot, and that could be something because uh, CDF looked very uh, counter happy against uh, Dariush. That that was part of the problem was he wasn't really trying to defend every takedown. He was looking for counter situations. And Darius is a better grappler than him, so it, you know, he outgrappled him in those situations. Um, Gillespie, I'm not going to say he's going to you know, purely have the jiu-jitsu knowledge to outgrapple him, but he could, he's going to win those scrambles most likely because that's his main strength, uh, is mat wrestling. He's not just like a top control guy. He's also a very fluid scrambler. Uh, the way he rode in college, he rode legs in. And when you ride, when you ride with legs in, you usually give people the opportunity to like build up and try to shake you off. And, you know, staying on somebody's back and moving through those positions making sure you don't get, get caught in your back it requires a lot of dexterity and you know hip mobility and you know instincts to to switch your positions and switch your grips and get your hips up and and you know keep moving like that uh so i, I posted a video this week on our youtube channel of gillespie some of the things he did in the Yancy Madero's fight with his riding against the cage and he, he's very capable in that sense so if you're trying to like Granby out from under him or, or do anything like that, that involves you going across your back and trying to you know, sweep him in any way off a takedown attempt, I don't think it'll work that well. I think he'll find his way on top. Um, but yeah, he's not a great pressure fighter at this point. That's not really how he's designed his striking. It's still just kind of he's learning still. He's learning how to strike still. He hasn't really had to have figured out his style. Um, but a long layoff, he could have been working hard the whole time. We don't know. Uh, but yeah, CDF's going to pressure him. Uh, Gillespie, not the cleanest takedown artist on the feet, so like reactive shots will be an option, but if you shut him down even a little bit, uh, he probably won't be able to work through it to get the takedown unless he gets you on the cage, which is good um, for him as well. So I think it's just going to be a competitive fight. Uh, I think Gillespie's toughness is going to make it more competitive than it might be if CDF is like a huge hitter and uh, Gillespie wasn't super durable. But I think it's going to be a, a back-and-forth one. We're definitely going to do a commentary for this one. Um, might be the only one we do a commentary for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this one's probably the highest priority. Neil Neil is fun, but other than that, not a ton on this card. Yeah, I don't... It's weird, because I think I trust Gillespie... Well, I definitely trust Gillespie's gas tank a lot more uh, than I do CDF's just in general. But also CDF putting the sort of pace he did on Tysimov over three rounds, it kind of makes me think that like CDF's cardio under normal circumstances is very, very good. It's but just, he can control what's yeah, happening, yeah. That's the thing. On the front foot, it's completely different from being forced onto the back foot. And I don't know if Gillespie's going to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's Hopefully he does. interesting yeah. Benny definitely showed off a lot of what's possible to throw him off his game and shut him down, but it also requires a lot of skill to do the things that Benny did. Yep. Um, Amanda Hibas is fighting Angela Hill. That's uh, Strawweight has, has some matchups that I'm, I'm cool with. Um, that's one of them. Hibas, obviously a grappler and, and a judo player, and she uh, she has cool throws. She has cool takedowns. I, I've written about them before. Uh, she's really cute and like seems like a nice person, and she did the, the hello. Uh, <laughs> so I like her for that. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of a, a cool matchup for Angela Hill because uh, she's going to have someone she definitely has an advantage on, uh, you know, advantage over on the feet, but 
you know, besides you know getting cloth clean by uh, Rodriguez, uh, Hivas is, is decently durable. Like she eats a lot coming in. Um, but so if she can like walk through counters and clinch up, we'll see what happens. Because like we said before, Hill's not a bad clinch fighter. She's pretty good actually for for the division. But is it the same with someone who's like throwing you and tripping you and things like that rather than just trying to you know Muay Thai you? Yeah, and that was well, terrible, but you know what I meant. <laughs> yeah, Lugumi's also super undersized for the division, where Amanda Hibas is a pretty decent size. Uh, so it, it, there are some differences there. Hibas isn't also incompetent on the feet. Uh, we saw her in the uh, Mackenzie Dern fight, where she just countered the same thing Dern did over and over and over without ever getting bored. Um, so I don't really know about this fight. I think Angela Hill, um, I still don't really trust her as a grappler, and there's like no reason to since she got tapped out by like Ronda Marcos a while ago. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's the main card. The prelims... There's at least one fighter here that I like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see any others. So Ben Rothwells is back. He's fighting the PFL champ, Philippe Linz. Uh, Linz won his UFC debut. You know he didn't. And he got two. knocked out by... Um... Okay. That's all I'm going to say about that team. fight then. Yeah. Uh, Phil Hawes, who... Lost they were trying to, to make him. That's true. <laughs> they were trying to make him happen for a while, because he uh, he wrestled at Iowa Central with John Jones, and then he um, I think he was a Jackson Wink guy. He might still be. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, they were trying to make him happen because of the John Jones connection, and it hasn't been working. He's fighting Kyle Dawkins, who's the brother of the heavyweight Dawkins. Chris, they're both uh competent, but like weird kind of athletes. Yeah. Like they don't you can't really tell where they're at physically, and sometimes it looks like they. Things shouldn't work, but they're they're actually pretty competent uh, skill wise. Um, Doc has had a, a, a fun fight that I think he lost uh, in was his last one, but yeah, 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 that was yeah. fairly interesting. Yeah, I remember so, uh, Doc has outstruck him and then just kept getting sucked into the grappling. So yeah, that was pretty that's sad. Right. So let's uh, hopefully that one's good, or at least Docus wins because yeah. he's a, a Philly guy and I, I support that. Uh, Ludovic Klein is definitely I think the guy with the most buzz on the prelims sure. would you agree um, his whole thing is being like really aggressive physical like nasty southpaw double attacker um but is there anything else you saw from him that's a, that suggests more depth than that i mean the knockout in this first fight against shane young shane young's a, a solid win uh but it also didn't really go long enough to see much uh he did counter with the jab from the inside angle and like hurt him into the head kick which is you don't generally see like prelim tier fighters use the southpaw double attack in that way but uh, I don't really know anything about his opponent, Michael Trezano. I think he was, like, off tough. Um, yeah. Trezano is, like, pretty competent skill-wise, but isn't really a threat in any situation and isn't, like, a hitter at all. And I don't know. I think he's kind of going to be a blank slate. Yeah, blank canvas, rather. Yeah, he's the one who beat uh, Pena via low kicks, like, years ago. Uh, but he doesn't fight all that often, so that's something. His last fight was in May 2019. So, interesting fight to give Ludovic. I think they want this to be a showcase, but Trezano has also mm-hmm. spoiled guys before. So, who knows? Uh, Ryan it's funny Benoit. we talked about we talked about him, Ryan Benoit, already. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ryan Benoit, I don't really know it. I, I remember thinking he beat uh, Tim Elliott, because that fight was kind of ugly, but Benoit did a lot more damage. Um, but he's off that fight uh, in July, and he's fighting Zoruk Adeshev. Uh, Adeshev is... Is he off the, um, the fucking... KO lost to Nam. Was that his last fight? I feel like he fought again since. Sumaderji. It sounds like you know more than I do at this point. Yeah, Sumaderji. So I didn't watch that fight, but 
he, he lost that too. Not the most interesting fight. Flyweight near the bottom still isn't super interesting. Um, there are some fun guys, but you know, like any other division, I guess. Um, Jun Young Park, the next Chimaev, fighting Tafan and Chukwi. Um, <laughs> Is our, that the Iron Turtle? Yeah, Jun Young Park is the Iron Turtle, the nice. best nickname in the game. Uh, Tafan Nchukwi is someone that one of our patrons has actually taken a keen interest in, uh, Miguel. Yeah, Miguel. Yeah, um, I don't really know that much about him. I remember watching the fight with um, Pickett. I think his name is Pickett. Uh, mm-hmm. Nchukwi just kind of hulked him around and beat him up. Uh, I don't really know if it takes a ton more to be successful at middleweight, but you know, Jun Young Park is at least competent as a wrestler sometimes, uh, competent enough to beat John Phillips, and apparently that proves a lot. So, yeah, there it is. Um, I don't know anything about the last two guys except Christian Aguilera. I've heard of him. I mean, I've heard of the lady. He's, he's, he's an LFA guy. Okay. Something about yeah, genies and bottles. That's it. Okay. Yeah, that's the <laughs> okay. So that was a lot of event coverage. We've been doing this a while. Let's do the, the job form. That, that job form. That's where we store our, our request <laughs> job form. Let's do the Patreon request, yeah. uh, which is on job form. Uh, from Evan Lee, he wants to know what are analytical takes that we're most proud of. I'm interpreting this as like fight predictions mostly, but you could also be like career predictions or just like reads that you had about guys that turned out to be true. Um, sure, I'm you go first. I'm I'm shy. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll start with the fight stuff. So uh, mine, probably my most specific one was uh, Davidson Figueredo versus Joseph Benavidez one. Um, this was when Joseph Benavidez was basically the champion, beat a guy who beat Figueredo. Uh, look like a much better cardio threat and Figueredo was still kind of, you know, meme violence man. Um, and I kind of had the thought that uh, Benavidez could struggle. I think I officially picked Figueredo in the article that I wrote uh, based on Benavidez's footwork being kind of ill-equipped to deal with big power counterpunchers and Figueredo being a natural pressure who'd draw that out of him and counter him. And that's pretty much exactly how it happened. Honestly, the second fight kind of hurt my case because it made it seem way more obvious than it was. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, that, that one was a good one. Any others? Or are we uh, going back and forth? Yeah. I mean, for fights, hmm. probably Usman Woodley. That was before I was on the fight site because it was like 2019 early. Um, I just never really trusted Woodley. I guess one of the uh, overall career projections that we'll get into later is I never thought Woodley was all that great. Um, but, you know, Usman made it look exactly that bad. <laughs> Uh, and I kind of figured that the Orthodox would give Woodley some trouble playing the uh, right-hand game, and Woodley hadn't really been tested by strong wrestlers who were as athletic as him, so there would be some openings to wrestle him, but it went better than it ever could by Wildest Dreams. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm right all the time. That's true. Very regularly, so it's tough to you know, really pick one. I just think if you listen to all of our podcasts and read all of our articles, I think you'll find coming away from like, man, I'd really... Knows what he's talking about. He does. Right a lot, so it's tough to choose. Um, it's hard to be humble when you're when you're this successful. But just a few recent examples. Well, one that's less recent, you know, pre, pre all of it, pre fight site, pre bloody elbow. Back in the MMA sucker days, is I wrote a breakdown on Formiga about you know his strengths and weaknesses as a striker before uh, his rematch with Joe B, and uh, like very clearly described what Joe B was going to do to him. Um, and then it happened. I was like, oh, cool. Um, and it was based on the Figueredo fight because it was basically the same things that Figueredo had success with. Um, so that was cool. Uh, I felt good about that one. And uh, I don't know. Probably the most recent one was uh, Jan Sterling um, famously uh, defeated Ben 
cone in analytical <laughs> in combat. <the> uh, <laughs> defeated Ben in the clinch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I I studied the um, Magomed Magomedov fights pretty heavily for that one because that was the best and most similar wrestler that he'd fought to Aljo. And just I studied Aljo as well, and I just knew both of their games really well. And I basically predicted almost every single thing that <laughs> that happened, which was really cool. Um, so yeah, before the fight, I had an article where I, I said all that stuff. I had podcasts where I said all that stuff. There's a lot of documentation. So I felt really good about that, um, especially because Ben made it such a thing. Like Ben kept pushing <laughs> and pushing and pushing to make it like he does that some sort of like pick a side thing. Like we're, <laughs> we're fighting about this. He just kept making it like this, raising the stakes. I'm like, okay, and then uh, he was embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking through all the recent events now to see if there's anything else cool. Um, Poirier McGregor two was one that I think I got reasonably correct, just dynamic and all. Uh, I picked right more on on yeah. faith than analysis on that one, but I I got it right. That that's what matters, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean we both got that one. I think uh, the the rationale was pretty. It didn't go as long as I thought it would. If Poirier would win. I figured it was like a round two knockout would probably be McGregor, but um, Poirier did use the right hook the way that I expected it to, to play out. So, you know, the Southpaw-Southpaw matchup came into play more than people expected, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's keep looking. I don't know. While you're, while you're looking, uh, some more. I'm, I'm rolling now. Yeah. Uh, not really. It totally depends on who you ask about how correct this is, but Yoel versus Izzy. Oh, uh, that's a my, good one my pre-fight in, in the, the staff predictions article, I basically said how it was how it was going to go down in terms of how, what Yoel was going to have success with. Um, wasn't completely right, but it was more right than a lot of other people. And it was like, for as weird as the fight was, like expecting it to be similar to that, I think is impressive. Yeah. And uh, Yoel got robbed. And <laughs> Definitely. Uh, that's, that's another fight one that was fairly recent. Um, but one, one just overall thing, back to Peter Jan, I think just me latching on to him early and declaring him a championship level fighter and uh, just being really high on him and investing a lot of time into him with articles and analysis and posts and stuff like that. That aged very well. I started doing it before his UFC debut. Uh, so I'm very cool. Uh, a lot of people who are like in the know, you might call them hardcore MMA fans. They, they liked Jan because he had banger fights in ACB. But I think some people thought he might be like an action fighter and I think there were doubters that arose during his UFC run because there are moments where if you don't fully understand him, you could be troubled by those moments. Yeah. But I, an understander, was not troubled by those moments and stuck to it. And here he is as uh, the uncrowned king of the Bantamweight division because he's a weirdo who just could not resist fouling Aljo. <laughs> so weird. But yeah, just uh, being, being a, a Yan stand that aged well. I'm proud of that. Uh, yeah, overall career ones, I think the the only guy that I really latched onto that's done fairly well is probably Calvin Cater. Um, Rob Font. That was, well, Rob Font kind of, but also I don't really know how well he's doing, if that makes he's sense. He's ranked higher than Cater. That's true, but also he beat Marlon Marais, who's probably like top 10 at best. At this All point of the numbers, career. baby. Also true. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't even really know why I started liking Cater. I just saw him like against Andre Feely, and I was like, hey, this guy looks like he might be cool with absolutely no backing. And then he was cool, and he beat Burgos, and now he's like, randomly top five despite being mm-hmm. like entering the ufc something like 11 or 12 years into his career which is kind of wild because there was like no footage on him aside from the regionals so that's probably mine although it looks worse after that last fight 
Mm-hmm. But, I think uh, half of the fight site can brag about Justin Gaethje versus Tony Ferguson. We caught a yeah. lot of flack for how confident we were in Justin Gaethje yeah. winning that one, and that 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 went pretty much as expected, right? Yeah, so we thought he'd knock him out sooner. Yeah, I think pretty much all of us picked Gaethje. Half of us was uh, Gaethje Khabib, which we cannot like claim to. The Polish guys didn't. Yeah, they picked Tony. It's fool. Shame, shame, <laughs> shame on you. But yeah, that's. Uh... That's all of mine. I don't really have all that many. I mean, if I look at one and I'm like, hey, I actually called that, that's pretty cool. But um, I can't really think of all that many that I got exactly right that weren't, like, decent favorites going in. Yes. So that's some bragging. Uh, I mean, literally, I'm not even joking that we say things every week that come true. <laughs> and we're just really smart and good at this. So that's very true. Say. Now, if you want to ask about our worst takes, then that's 20... However many, not not twenty, ten more bucks from you, uh, to, to get that information. But and the podcast uh, will be whole, far longer. That's a whole different conversation. Um, but yeah, do you have anything uh, to advertise? Oh, I mean, you're it, it's been a little bit, but your um your Yoel Whitaker article and uh, our commentary video, right? Yeah, just the general series. Keep up with that. Um, Ben's Hendrix Lawler two article is out. The commentary should be out soonish, right? They're recording tonight. Yep. Yeah. So keep up with the series. So uh, Dan Albert's Alvarez Gaethje article, my Whitaker Romero 2 article, uh, the commentaries associated with all of that. And there will be two more coming up. We won't tell you what fights they are, but you probably have a decent inkling. So, uh, you know, if you followed us on Twitter for long enough anyway. So look forward to that. Uh, anything else? I don't really know if I'm doing anything just because the cards coming up are, like, kind of anemic. Um, 262 is fun, so I might try something on that. Uh, Font Garbrandt is a fun fight, so I might try something on that. But I don't really know. It's a, it's a weird season. True. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, I'm gonna be watching uh, Olympic last chance qualifiers. I'm not gonna be watching them when they happen because they're happening at 3 a.m. But I'm gonna watch those. Um, that'll be cool. Basically, uh, people who are like made their Olympic teams for their their country. If they didn't place top five in the world or win their continental qualifier or place wherever they needed to at their continental qualifier. That sounds fun. They haven't qualified to go to the Olympics yet. So basically this is whether or not they get to go. And it's a bunch of fucking people. So like a lot of really, really, really good like elite world medal level guys and, and girls and Greco people who all have to go through and make the finals of this tournament uh, to qualify. And the brackets are insanely mismanaged. Like, all of the tough guys are on one side of the bracket, and they're all going to knock each other off, and only one of them is going to get to qualify, and the other side of the bracket is going to be some scrub. Um, so that sucks. So it's going to be chaos. Uh, yeah, I don't really know if there's anything else going on. Um, uh, yeah, we talked about everything, right? Yeah. We're just extending this. I'm thinking it's going to be long as hell, because we're going to yes. add Ryan's thing in, too. Oh, my oh God, it's yeah, go it's already, forever. like, just us, it's 75 minutes. Okay, we might as well end it now then. Um, The end. Thanks for joining us, everybody.